All right, friends, if you could grab a seat, let's get started here. First of all, it is great to see you, and although we say that every week, we really mean it this week. It is great to actually see your face. It is great to worship without masks. It's great to celebrate, as we call it here at Coastline, National Face Liberation Day. We hope that you are enjoying uh, actually getting to be together. You know, when we, when we started Coastline, we, we did have masks, and and we were grateful for them because they allowed us to come together and worship when we wouldn't have been able to otherwise. But we knew that the worship would be really quiet. We knew that we'd have this kind of natural barrier between just human connection. And you spend most of the time trying to pretend like you understood what the person said, even though you didn't understand what they're going to say. We just knew it was no way to plant a church, but we were always looking forward to this day when the mass would come off and we get to sing. And so it truly is good to see you and to kind of move into a new era of louder worship, personal connection, and really being together. It's also Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. I spent mine building IKEA furniture with my dad and my sons and found that really there's no better way for a family to bond than cursing the Swedes together. And so we did that, did that. Uh, and it's also, we get to kind of recognize something which is a little bit new for us as well. It's Juneteenth weekend, uh, which is just worthy recognizing and for us to kind of pause and acknowledge it. Uh, it's not something we've usually talked about in church in the past, but there was a time when churches talked a ton about it. I mean, the church was this leading movement in the abolition of slavery with preachers preaching again and again about God's heart for justice and for the care for the widows, the orphans, the sojourners, that li literally a measure of our own faith with God was in how we treated the least of these. And they continually called on us to move past this and to move forward and to give it up, Charles Finney, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And so as we recognize and as we pause now, we, we actually get to reclaim part of what churches were once all about and to recognize and celebrate again uh, the end of slavery and recognizing still that we have really a long way to go. We are in a series called Foundations, really kind of laying the groundwork of what Coastline is going to be. Uh, again, we're a new church, and with that, we could be any number of things, but who really will we be? What will our identity be? What will we be known as? There's so many different things that churches can kind of build their foundations upon that give them their own personal character and their own kind of personal identity, and that's so good. I am so grateful for different kinds of churches that do different things well in the South Bay, but for Coastline, what will it be? Who will we be? Where will we really lay down our roots? And we've been talking about our vision statement, which is to live as God's beloved children, inviting all to experience Jesus. That's where we're headed. Our mission statement, how are we going to get there, is this to create joyful and courageous followers of Jesus. Man, I want to be joyful and courageous as I follow Jesus. And as we try to do those things, there's four things that we believe that we have to have if we're going to be successful in doing either of them. We're going to have to be boldly biblical, spirit-seeking, holy worshiping, and fully family. And today I get to kick us off with really focusing on how we're going to be boldly biblical. When you think about the Bible, it is such a unique book. There really is nothing out there like it. There is no other book that has words on a page that can compare to what it is. It is inspired, we say, by God, meaning that he authored it through human authors. But every word that is on its page is exactly the one that God wants or that he has been speaking through humanity. And yet, the incredible part about it is that although it is authored by God, it is still something that is totally readable. 
So when I was the youth pastor, one of the things that we would do on the Delta is we would send kids out for a three-hour quiet time. Uh, this was largely to get them to stop flirting with one another. It was to get them away from their cell phones, uh, and it was for uh, adults to get a break from them. But the amazing thing about it is that you'd send kids out for three hours with their Bibles, and most of the time they'd have no idea what they were doing. They would literally open it up and just try to find something, and yet, even though they were lost in the text, God still found them and would meet them there. That God would come and convict them about sin. He would reveal his own glory. He would give them a verse they had never considered before. He would challenge them. He would build them up. And kids would come back with these incredible stories of how God showed up in these three hours, and that they'd never spent time like that before in their life. It changed lives. It totally redirected where they might go. That the Bible is both given by God, and yet it is for us. It is completely readable. It's one of the things that the Reformers talked about, is that the Bible had to be given to the people, because it can be understood by the people. In fact, you might say that it is written with the simple in mind. Proverbs 19.7 says that it is able to make wise the simple. And so the hope is that every one of us comes to the Bible as one who is simple in the ways of God, and it comes, it wants us to come in that way, to teach us and to make us wise in him. And so if you've never really gone to church, if you've never really opened your Bible, it is literally for you. It is there to make you wise in the ways of God, and God wants to speak through it to do so. It is yours. And yet the Bible is also full of these depths of treasures that we are just never going to fully mine. Uh, I'm in the space now where I have preached some passages um, probably upwards of 20 times, uh, maybe 20, 25 times. And what that means that there's hundreds and hundreds of hours that I have put into some of these texts, and yet I find I still come to them and I'm shocked by what's there at times. Sometimes I feel like somebody snuck some things into my Bible that weren't there before. Because I'll read it and go, when was... When was that added? How is it that I've read this passage and that passage just passed me up in times past, but now it's right in front of my face and I can't let it go? The Word of God has these depths of it that we will never fully exhaust and we will never fully explore. In fact, I love this. In, in the book of Romans, which is Paul's deepest, most theologically rich book, he spends about the first 10 chapters just exploring what does it mean to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And as he finishes up this section, he looks at it and then he just says this, oh, how deep are the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. You see, even as Paul is writing scripture, even as the Spirit writes through him, even though he has just really unpacked all that it means to believe in Jesus, he looks at it and he says, there is untold depths to this, that we will never fully grasp it, that even when we get into eternity, and even when we see God, we will still be exploring the depths of the scripture. So you can dedicate your life to it, and still learn from it, and you can come to it not knowing anything, and be made wise by it. It is completely mysterious in these ways. You know, we tend to recommend to people what we enjoy. We did this especially a lot in the pandemic. We recommend Netflix shows that we like to our friends. Uh, we recommend restaurants that we like to our friends. We recommend friends to friends if we want them to meet. And we do this because we want people to have similar experiences as us. And so for me, it is easy to teach the Bible, to recommend it to you because I believe it has the true power to change your life. And not in a way that kind of changes your life. 
I believe that the Bible has the power to totally change your present, transform how you understand the past, bring healing to things that are long infected and wounded that you limp from still. It has the ability to heal it, and it has the ability to change your future into this glorious thing that you could never imagine. It has the ability to help you release anger. It has the ability to change who you are at your core. It has the ability to help you step into joy even if you've been stuck in sorrow for such a long time. It has the ability to change everything about you because what it wants to do is to connect you to the author of all life who is also the author of its pages to connect you to Jesus. And it's because of that the Bible's not just a book. It is because it is spirit. It is because it is God-written, God-authored. And so when we read it, we aren't simply reading pages. We are actually meeting God in it. That we are having an experience with him. That he is there tangibly in the words, in the pages, wanting to speak to us and want us to understand exactly who he is. But more than that, he wants us to understand exactly who we are. And sometimes we don't want to hear either of those things. Sometimes we're uncomfortable with who God is or what he might ask of us, and we don't want to hear about who we are and what we might need. And so at times we come to the Bible and we encounter it and we want to actually push back because it reveals not just a truth, but the truth about all things. And sometimes we like our, vision, our version of the truth better than God's ultimate truth. In fact, that's the exact thing that's going to happen in the passage that we're going to study today, John chapter 6. We're going to find a large number of people are going to hear the words of Jesus, and they're going to push back. And yet there's going to be some who are going to go deeper. What I want to show you today is that Scripture, yes, it always asks more of us than we're ready to give it. It always asks more from us than we're ready to give it. When we read the words, we are always challenged by what it wants from us. And yet it also gives us more than we ask of it. We oftentimes hope to have some sort of small encounter with God, and yet when we actually read his text, we find that he is there in abundance and wants to meet us today. And that's who we're going to go meet today as we open his word. So if you would stand with me, we're going to be in John chapter 6. I'm going to pick it up in verse 63. That might be a little bit different. Oh, we got it. That's exactly there. Thank you, Mia. Amazing. Uh, John chapter 6, 63. And we're going to go to about 69. We're going to pick it right up in the middle of a thought here of Jesus. The Spirit gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. I love that. They're full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, and who would betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back, and they no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Insider Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is God's word. Let me pray. Lord, I um, am humbled, Lord, every time I have to stand behind a pulpit and to open your word. And yet, Lord, I also come to this place with this joy and this release, knowing that um, you've called me to be faithful. But Lord, the power is in you and in your word, that you are the one who changes hearts. And that, Lord, your spirit is the one who's truly speaking, far more so than my words. It's your spirit that is speaking to each and every heart. And so, God, we ask that you would preach today, not me, but that you would preach. 
and that, God, you'd help us have that encounter that we so long to have with you, that you would meet us in your word, and you'd lead us to build our life upon it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So in John chapter 6, one of the interesting that is happening is that Jesus' popularity has exploded. And it's really come from a number of different things. First of all, his teaching uh, gives an interpretation of the Jewish law that was different than anything they'd ever heard before. And so it's compelling. Uh, you, you can see that people are already wrestling with what it means. They've never heard anything like it. So people want to hear this master speak on the text. He's also performing, performing miracles. And so there are people who are ill who are coming to see him with his hopes of being healed. And there are people who want to see someone be healed. They want to see a miracle. They've heard about it in the Old Testament, but they've never actually seen it themselves. So they're coming for the spectacle. They, they have heard that Jesus cast out demons and they want to see the spiritual encounter happen between Jesus and the demons. But the crowds have become so large that Jesus begins to change how he travels he used to kind of walk by foot, town by town, but in John chapter 5, he begins to travel by boat so that he can get across the lake faster, so he can get away from the crowd, so he can get a moment's peace. But as he comes to land in John 5 into this new area of town, the people have just walked around the lake. And so they've met him there. There's this sort of pandemonium of people traveling over there. And now the problem is that they're far from home, they didn't come prepared, and they're hungry. And so Jesus feeds them. He feeds the multitude through another miracle. Now, this is another reason for people to come see Jesus. This is a time when people are poor, and if Jesus is going to come and serve bread and fish and cook up some demons and also heal some people and raise the dead and say something amazing, well then, people just want to see that happen. They want to be there for it. And Jesus knows that he's on the verge of celebrity status. But that's not what he's after. He's not there to entertain He's not there to kind of tickle their ears. He's not there to put on a show. He is there to come and bring hope and life into their life. Into, into their life. And to do so, he's going to have to reveal their sin to them and present himself as the way. And so in John 6, he decides to begin challenging them. And he does so by saying three things that upsets people. First, in John 6, 35, he says this, I am the bread of heaven. When he says, I am the bread of heaven, it says that people went, wait, wait, wait. We know your family. You're from Nazareth. What do you mean you're from heaven? Are you saying that you were born in heaven? And they thought, this guy's, this is strange. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying compared to the story they already knew of him. In John 6.47, he says, my father and I, we give eternal life. When people heard that, they said, well, we thought you were a good rabbi, but you're saying that you and God the Father, he is your father, and that you, you have the keys to eternal life? They, they weren't ready to say that yet. And then in John 6.53, he says something that would have made me abandon him if I heard him. And it's this. He says, if you would have anything of me, then you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That is just confusing. And if you were there when you heard it, you would have thought, this dude is a psychopath. And that's actually what people hear. They think, is he asking us to be cannibals? Like, they just don't even understand at all what he means. Jesus is speaking figuratively, but they hear it literally, and they are so confused, and people just walk out. They're done. The crowd's just thin. And those who are left are those who truly believe that what Jesus has are the words of life. And that's, he asked Peter, are you going to leave too? And he says, where else would I go? You have the words of life. What he is saying there, when he says that you have the words of life, is that you have the truth about me and about God. 
And where else would I go? Because the truth is so hard to find. Just think about it in your everyday life. The truth at times can be incredibly difficult to find out. If you've ever talked to two friends who've broken up, or an engagement that breaks up, or a marriage that falls apart, if you ever spend time talking to each party, what you're going to find is radically different stories about what happened. In fact, the stories can at times be so different that you'll be lost in thinking, am I even talking to the same couple? I do not understand their story about what's happened. Or if you've ever been to a doctor who says, this is what is wrong with you. Here is your diagnosis, here is your treatment, and this will be the cost. And yet you'll see another doctor, and they'll say, no, 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 you have a different diagnosis, and you need a totally different treatment, and there's a totally different cost, and you sit there and think, but I'm a youth pastor. How am I supposed to decide between these two doctors? What is the truth, and how do you find it? I had a friend who got into a car accident the other day, and as they were settling with the insurance company, the insurance company said, we have decided that you were 70% at fault. How do you come up with that number? What is 70%? Why not 52%? Why not 89%? I mean, who truly is at fault, and who can ever determine it? How can you ever decide some of these things? You see, the truth can be very elusive for us to find. In fact, turn on the news and just go back and forth between CNN and Fox News and tell me if you can find out what the truth is. Two radically different takes on the same events, and we're just left to be confused by it. Now, if you don't know what happened, then when you actually experience things that are, that are challenging, you're going to struggle with why it has happened. I mean, if you don't know what, then you can't know why. If you don't know what has happened, if you can't find the truth, then ultimately you can't understand the, pure, the purposes behind it. You can't understand what is happening in the deeper questions. And if you don't know what is happening, then if you can't conclude why it's happening, then in the end you are lost for making any sort of meaning out of your life. What is happening to my body? Why am I sick? Where is God? Why isn't he answering my prayers? Isn't he good? He said he would never leave me nor forsake me. What is happening? My marriage is falling apart. Why are we struggling? Who are they? What should I do? Should we go to counseling? What do we do now? You see, you start to get to these places where you begin getting bigger and bigger questions, and you don't know where to turn, and you don't know where to go, and you end up radically lost. That's something that actually Karl Barth, who was a theologian during World War I, spoke about. He said that all of Europe had become Christian in name, but no longer Christian in practice. And he says, it is in fact, it's like all of Europe, he said, has become people who live in a warehouse that has no windows, no doors. That sounds like the haunted house of Disneyland, sorry. Remember, no wind, not that sort of place. But he says the entire, all of Europe are like these people who are in this warehouse that is dimly lit, living here together, not understanding really the world that they live in. He says, but then one day a child in the warehouse climbs up to the roof and they see a window and they rub the dirt off of it and suddenly light comes into the warehouse that they've never seen before and suddenly they begin to understand their world in a different way. Suddenly now there's light into the warehouse that they hadn't seen before and as they look out, they see people who are laughing and playing. There's trees and stars and sun and sky and he says that those who live in the warehouse 
Those who live in the darkness are those who live separated from God. And that those who are outside playing in the light and those who are out there amongst the trees, those are the people who live in the light and the love of God. He says what that child has done with that beam of light is reveal that there are two worlds that we live in here. You either live lost in the darkness of your sin, or you live in the light and the glory of Jesus. And he says what scripture has done is it has come down, it has opened up a door for us to walk out of our own sin into the light and the love of God. That is what the word of God is. It reveals a truth to us about who we are and who God is. Well, what is that truth? What is this thing that sets us free from these dark warehouses of being stuck, from not having any sort of answers into living in the light and the love of God? It is a simple preacher's answer that you may have heard before, that you are worse off than you know, and you are more loved than you can imagine. That is the truth that sets us free that you are desperately lost in your own sin, that your entire self from your thoughts, attitudes, actions, desires, every part of you is touched by sin in some way. In fact, there is no, nothing that you do that is totally innocent. In fact, everything you do is tinged with guilt on some level because you're that corrupted, you are that broken, that none of us are saints. And yet God in his profound love for us came and sent his son Jesus to come through his death and resurrection on the cross so that we could be saved by believing in him. And in believing in him, he comes to renew our hearts and he begins to draw us near to him and he begins to bring us to life and he begins this process of bringing us together in churches and renewing all of creation. This is the truth of scripture that opens up the world and this is the truth that causes Peter to not be able to leave Jesus even when Jesus says hard things that he doesn't even fully understand. It is because the promise of what Jesus gives is so good that it helps him through all of the struggles. The ironic part is that the Bible gives light and life to us. It oftentimes we believe that if I, if I really am going to read the Bible, it's going to be death to me in some way. It's going to cause me to have to give up something that I love, or something that I enjoy, or relationships that are important, or dreams that I have, or maybe even some possessions that we've cherished. Somehow it's going to be death to me when really what it is is life to us. And what I think that shows is just how terribly, again, we are lost in our own sin. I will never forget uh, where I was on the day when Kobe Bryant died. I was just finished preaching at uh, Rolling Hills Covenant, came off the stage, and a congregant held his phone out to me that had the headline that Kobe had crashed. And the ironic part about it was that he had been in a helicopter and the pilot had become lost in the fog. And the pilot thought, the only way to get out of the fog is if I make a hard bank left, and then I'll be able to get out of the fog and see where I am. But he was so lost in the fog that when he turned left, he actually went full speed into a mountain and killed everybody on board. And friends, that's just the way Scripture describes, again, our sin. That's another ana analogy, just like the warehouse, is that you might think that if you begin to follow the Scriptures, it's going to bring death, but chances are, if you're going to fly your own life, it's only a matter of time before you're going to fly into the side of a mountain. Because you live in the fog of sin. You are still living by another truth. And Scripture says, come. It is light and life to us. It is literally full of life. And when we begin to bring the life of God, the Scriptures, into our life, it brings everything else in our life to light. Uh, something you need to know about me, uh, I love flowers. 
which is probably obvious by the shirt that I'm wearing today. Uh, I put the shirt on today, and Liam said, that's a sweet shirt, Dad. Where'd you get it? Wonderland? I said, thanks, Liam. Happy Father's Day to me. But I do love them. I looked at this shirt, and I went, that thing's sick. It walks the line between being dorky and cool, and you know where it falls? On the cool side of the line. I'm going to wear it. And so, where was I going with this story about my shirt? I've always loved planting. I've always loved flowers. I've literally been planting flowers since I was 16. And my garden in my backyard is my pride and joy. I have the hydrangeas from Little Shop of Horrors that could eat a man. My children try to harm them uh, because they're so big it gets in their way. Then they get punished. I, I just love planting. And people will ask these questions like, whoa, you've got a green thumb. How did you get these flowers so big? And I tell them, it's not hard. It came in a pot. I dug a hole. I put it in the ground, and I gave it some water. And then it did that. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm good at planting because the thing about a plant is it's alive. It's actually alive, and if you will give it water, if you will care for it, in even the smallest of ways, it will become something that can blossom, bear fruit, and become something that is literally filled with the glory and the beauty of God. That is what it can become. It is because it is by nature alive, and it needs only a little view for it to become something that is beautiful, and that is what the Word of God is. It's alive, and if you will simply plant it into your life, it will become something that's beautiful. That's part of what Hebrews 4.12 is trying to say that we miss sometimes. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the Word of God, it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and it divides soul and spirit. Look, uh, maybe this just because I'm a a guy. Whenever I read that verse, I focus on the double-edged sword, because that sounds cool to me. But the part I think that we miss sometimes is that the Word of God, it is living and active. So that when I actually bring the Word of God into my life, when I bring the Bible into the center of my heart, it is going to be alive inside of me. And not only is it going to be alive, it's going to be active. It is not going to sit still. It is going to grow. It is going to change. It's going to move. It is going to produce fruit inside of me. And that's going to come eventually outside of me due to the power that it has. Some of the times when we read the Bible, we read as if we are prepping for midterms. Like we are prepping for the Bible Jeopardy class or something like that. Like we think that somehow we are reading for information. But really the Bible is all about transformation. It is all about bringing the Word of God in so it can change you. This is not something for the intellectuals, again, although it can be studied that way. But when we read it, it is for the effect that it's going to have on our life. And the only thing we need to do is to plant it in our lives. And if the Word of God is living, then ultimately I need to learn to live with it. And oftentimes we just don't live with the Bible. I think far too many of us know five or six verses that we memorized once a million years ago. And we enjoy those verses, but we don't really live with the Word of God. But if it's alive, it's meant to live in us. Look, friends, you're not going to plant a garden if you go through the soil and put five seeds down. And if you stand back and water it, you're not going to have a garden. You're going to have five little scraggly plants. If you want your heart, if you want your life to become a garden filled by God, full of his transforming power, then it means that we need to sow the seeds of the word everywhere into our heart. We need to literally soak ourselves. We need to cover our hearts with the scriptures and allow them to begin to do the change so that we can be changed because that is what they will do.
the Word of God, again, it forces us to think outside of ourselves. It focuses us to think about God. It reveals that I am not the center of the universe, regardless of what I think, but Jesus Christ is. And as I begin to center my life around him, suddenly things begin to fall into place. That is what we are hearing from Peter when in verse 69, he says, we believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. You are seeing a man who says, Jesus, we have come to found that you are not only a source of truth, but you are the center of all things. That you are worthy of all of my attention, that you are worthy of directing my life. And so even though challenged, I'm going to follow you because I've come to understand exactly who you are. That is the power of the word of God is that it changes us in this way. And, and I've done this in the past, uh, but I did it in a sermon that I did online um, back at Rolling Hills. But I did it like in week six of the pandemic. And the problem was like everybody watched church for like week one through four through the pandemic. And then people just slept in late for the other one. So you probably haven't heard this. But the amazing thing about the era that we live in is that we have greater access to the Bible than anybody ever has. I mean, the printing press isn't invented until the 1400s. Until then, nobody has bound Bibles. Nobody has the entirety of scriptures all to themselves. In fact, through most of Jesus' time and through the most of the early church age, it is having a scroll here, scroll there, not having the entirety of the text and certainly not having it all to yourself. So personal possession doesn't actually happen until the printing press is made. And after the printing press is made, the Reformation has to come to translate it from Latin, which they couldn't read, into German, which they could. And now you and I have phones that we can look the Bible up, but that just hasn't always been it. We live in a day where we have access to the transforming power of God in a greater way than we ever and anybody ever has. And that word has power. I heard a story about the uh, underground church in China, which is rapidly growing in amazing, powerful ways. And one of the things that happens is that when the government performs a raid on one of these churches in China, the church immediately begins taking the Bibles that they have and begins pulling the pages out as quickly as they can, these loose pages, and stuffing them and handing them off. Why are they doing that? They believe that even one page of the Bible can change a life. It doesn't matter if it's Leviticus, doesn't matter if it's Numbers, doesn't matter if it's Philemon, doesn't matter what it is, regardless of what page it is, inside of it is spirit spoken by God. God is waiting to encounter you there, and it can change your life because God's waiting. Now, how different would our own lives look if we thought Scripture was actually that? That on every page it had the potential to change my life. Again, we just ask too little, or think too little, I should say, of the Bible. We don't believe that it really is what it says. But if we will not just scatter it in our lives, but take it in, it'll change us. In fact, that's one of the very strong metaphors that Jesus is playing off of in John that we see again and again in the Scripture, that the Word of God, it doesn't just seem to be scattered into our life. We need to actually eat it. We need to actually consume it and take it down to the depths of us. This is Jeremiah 15, 16. He says, when your Word came... I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name. In Psalm 34, 8, a very familiar verse, taste and see that the Lord is good, and blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. In Matthew 4, 4, it says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The idea is that it needs to be scattered in our seeds 
as seeds in our life, but it needs to be eaten and taken down in the depths of us. And the analogy makes sense. That we take the word of God and we taste it. We understand the flavor of it. We kind of savor it. We enjoy the word of God. We don't read it just out of obligation, but we truly enjoy it like the bite of food. And we don't simply just flip through the pages, read quickly, and then go on our school day or then go on to work, but we deeply meditate on the Word of God. We take it down to our core, and there we slowly consume and digest. The Word of God is something that is meant to be meditated on. It's meant to be prayed through. Have you ever prayed through the Word? After you read it, you stop, and you pray and say, Jesus, what are you saying? Is there something for me here? God, what would you want from me? God, how would you might change me if I were to live into this more? We consume the word slowly, meditating and praying over it. And then as we consume and digest the word, it then gets transformed into action, into blood and into words and into thoughts and into running and actions and activity. The word of God moves from inside of us, outside of us, because we've consumed it down to our depths and it's become a delight. It's not meant to be a bite, friends. It's meant to be a meal. And maybe it's not even meant to be a meal. It's meant to be a banquet that is served in front of us that we come back to and eat again and again and again. This is what Jesus means. When he says, if anybody would come after me, they must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He is talking in part about communion, but he's talking about his very self. That you have to come and take his words and his life down to the depths of you if you're going to have anything to do with them. He says, if you're coming to see a show, if you're coming to see a demon be cast out, if you're coming to see uh, a miracle be performed, if you're coming for a fancy teaching, or if you're coming for bread, that's not it. He says, in fact, if you want to have anything to do with me, you must come and take my life inside of you and consume it and bring it back out. It's a good caution for Coastline. Because let's be honest, you can, you can come here hoping to hear a great sermon. And I got to promise you, I'm going to serve you up some duds sometimes. I'm not going to try to. In fact, I'm going to give my very best. But there's going to be times where you're going to walk out and go, I just got nothing out of that. There's going to be times where you're going to come up here for worship and you're going to find out that there's not a drummer this week. This week is just acoustic. And you're going to go, but I love the drums. And in that week, it just won't be enough for you. There will be times where you'll come to church wanting to meet with the fellowship of the family of God, which is so important to us, but there might be weeks where you come and you just don't know anybody here. But if you come to feast on the word of God, I can promise you there's a banquet here every week. Because again, it's not from me or from us or from Garrick. It is coming from the very word that's going to speak through you. Again, it is Jesus who is preaching, not me. It is the spirit who is speaking and applying it to your heart. He's always going to come because the word never comes back void to us. It always bears fruit. And yet it's challenging. And it's hard. And yes, it asks much of you. But let me ask you Peter's question where else would we go? Where else will you go for the words of life? Are you going to simply go to yourself? You already know that you don't have all the answers. Are you going to go to your friends? You already know that they are searching as much as you are. Are you going to go to culture? You already know that what is allowed today will not be allowed tomorrow, and what is prohibited today will be allowed tomorrow. So if that is going to be the word of life for your life, it's going to be constantly changing. Where will you go for the words of life? What can you truly build your life upon? It can only be found in the scriptures. Friends, it will ask more from you than you are willing to give it. And it is going to give more to you than you ever asked of it.
But it comes down to you being willing to sow it into your heart, coming and eating and taking and building your life upon it. Lord, we pray that this could be true of us as individuals, but us as a church. Lord, if you could make us a church that loves your word, that holds to it firmly, that lifts it up, that sees that every time we open it's a page that you are there waiting for us in it, then Lord, we'll be a church of impact in families and lives and marriages and communities. Lord, we pray for other churches. We can be a blessing to them. But Lord, the sort of place that leads people out of dark warehouses into the light and the love of God. Lord, would you do that here? Would you do it through us? Would you do it through your word? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.